0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Well, a few months ago, we talked with several COVID-19 long haulers. At that time, they said that uh, some continue to suffer debilitating effects of the disease months after being infected with the virus. Uh, Moving to today, many long haulers say they had active lifestyles prior to getting sick, but they're nowhere near getting back to normal. Today, we're going to check back in with Lisa O'Brien, founder of uh, Utah COVID-19 Long Haulers uh, Group. Uh, Lisa O'Brien, welcome to the program. Hi,
1: Tom. Thanks for having me back.
0: Thanks. Thanks for joining us. We'll also be talking with Dr. Braden Yellman of the Bateman Horn Center. Dr. Yellman, thanks for joining us.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tom.
0: And uh, we are joined by Dr. Jeanette Brown, director of the new post-COVID care clinic at the University of Utah. Dr. Brown, uh, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Appreciate everyone joining us. Uh, Important topic. Uh, So check back in with Lisa O'Brien here. Um, So uh, just your personal story. Remind us, uh, what happened to you?
1: Yeah, so I got COVID early on, back in March of 2020. Um, Two weeks, or the same week that the country started shutting down, um, testing wasn't widely available. I didn't have all the, uh, the three key symptoms they were looking for at the time. So by the time I got tested, it came back negative. It was a couple of weeks after my symptoms had started. Um, my symptoms continued to go on. Um, but they, did, they, did, they were improving slightly, um, but they never went 100% away. And then in week eight, I started having... Uh, what they call autonomic dysfunction. Your autonomic uh, nervous system is responsible for, like, your heart rates and uh, body temperature, blood pressure. Um, so my heart rates, you know, began to be erratic. Sometimes they would hit 30. Sometimes a couple times they hit 221. Um, it started to become every single time I would stand up, my heart rate would hit 160. Uh, I developed blood clots, one of my arm and one of my lungs in month three of my recovery, um, I cycled through over 60 different symptoms in all my body systems, um, so it wasn't just, you know, centered in one in one body system. Um, I was dismissed many times by doctors, you know, telling me that I just had anxiety, um, and so I started the Utah Long Hauler Group in June of last year um, to make sure that Uh, just to build awareness and to make sure that people didn't have the same experience as I did um, and to get education out to providers and um, help get us more resources. I'm in month 15 now. I'm doing much better than I was. Um, I'm not 100%, but I'm still dealing with fatigue some days and brain fog some days, Um, but I have improved.
0: Well, that's good. I'm glad for that improvement. Yeah hope it continues to improve uh what about the the uh the folks that you talk to uh among the long haulers uh similarly are many of them improving or some still about where they were
1: yeah it really varies for each person um i think it seems like um just from observation right there's no official study on this but it seems like you know there's this this thought in between like months Two to seven, where the symptoms, like, are really, really bad, and then, um, you know, after month seven, things kind of start to um, improve really, really slowly, um, but it's not it's not that way for everybody. I, I know people that are as far out as I am um, that haven't seen much improvement, so um, it'll just, you know, time will tell, and when studies are... are uh, Conducted, we'll you know have to see what they what they show. But
0: uh, let me turn to uh, Dr. Braden Yellman, uh, Bateman Horn Center. First of all, Dr. Yellman, what is the Bateman Horn Center? What do you do there?
2: So the Bateman Horn Center is a nonprofit that has been dedicated to trying to treat people with unexplained fatigue who have been. Uh, dismissed by other aspects of the healthcare system. And in particular, we have over the years developed a specialty in dealing with illnesses that develop after viral illnesses, not unlike we're seeing here in in long COVID. Um, Those illnesses are often referred to or become a chronic illness called MECFS or myalgic encephalomyelitis formerly known as chronic fatigue syndrome Uh, and so we treat MECFS and fibromyalgia due to many causes and have learned a lot about the development of and progression of post-viral illnesses.
0: So uh, uh, COVID I guess the latest and most famous of a post-viral illness but not the first is what you're saying?
2: Definitely not the first. There have been small outbreaks um, of viruses across the country for many years uh, that end up giving similar symptoms in the long term to a bit of what we're seeing with long COVID. Um, But, of course, none of them has managed to be as famous or prevalent as uh, COVID-19, given the pandemic in this country. It's also interesting because it need not always be viral-triggered. We do sometimes see other types of infectious illnesses, Uh, trigger uh, a constellation of symptoms similar to long COVID and even uh, traumatic brain injuries or other types of injuries can be uh, triggers as well.
0: And these types of uh, disease illnesses are harder to diagnose, right? There's not a blood test.
2: Correct, yeah. We say that there's not a biomarker for diagnosis Uh, and that essentially means that you can't do a blood test, you can't run a specific imaging test that uh, absolutely confirms that this is what somebody has. And so the best we have right now is a set of clinical criteria developed in 2015 by a panel of experts who have been seeing patients with these constellation of symptoms for most of their careers. We call that the 2015 Institute of Medicine criteria. Uh, And uh, there are five uh, main criteria that are present in nearly everybody. Um, And we use that both for uh, diagnosis of patients, but also to kind of help define a population when studying illnesses like this. Uh, But symptoms can extend far beyond those core criteria, and we see many uh, common uh, issues with the autonomic system, with the immune system, and with the uh, metabolic system as well that are not always included in those criteria.
0: So Lisa talked about her trouble getting a diagnosis, uh, you know, being frustrated by some doctors in her view of dismissing her. Do you find that patients uh, come to, to your clinic and, and have had those experiences before?
2: Almost universally so, and it's really unfortunate. You know, I uh, never once learned about uh, post-viral illnesses or ME-CFS or related illnesses in medical school. I didn't learn about it in internal medicine residency, nor did I learn about it in my rheumatology fellowship. Uh, And in fact, uh, I practiced rheumatology here in Utah for some time and would see people for evaluation for lupus, and it would turn out that I would say, well, you certainly don't have lupus, but something is wrong. Uh, And in retrospect... Uh, many of those people were experiencing a lot of the same symptoms of these types of post-viral illnesses. So we have a long way to go in education of physicians and uh, helping these illnesses become more mainstream. The science is present. We have thousands of studies um, giving us information about these types of illnesses, but the clinical medicine just has not caught up, and patients end up without a biomarker, Um, feeling abandoned by the traditional health system and not feeling validated in their illness. Um, I've had many people tell me that they almost thought they were crazy, that they were starting to believe that something was in their head and they they didn't fully understand what was going on. Families also can get very confused messages about their loved ones when doctors say there's nothing wrong, um, at least based on a biomarker, but they can very clearly see that their loved one is, is doing poorly
0: want we'll to turn next to Dr. Jeanette Brown, uh, director of the new uh, post-COVID care clinic, University of Utah. So, Dr. Brown, um, why is this clinic being set up? What's what's the purpose? What are your goals there?
3: This is a fantastic question. Um, I am an ICU doctor as well as um, outpatient doctor, and honestly, I've spent my last year and change, you know, taking care of very critically ill patients in the ICU, but also on our floors and in our clinics, seeing patients that, you know, typically didn't get hospitalized, you know, in their initial illness that are still suffering from those symptoms months later. So our overall goals of that clinic were to provide this patient-focused care for individuals with prolonged symptoms after having COVID, and that can be for both hospitalized patients and non-hospitalized patients. And we wanted to take what we do best, which is research, um, and collaborate between our clinic and our patients who are incredibly altruistic um, and wanting to develop research infrastructure. One of those examples is we have a database called a REDCAP database um, that tracks symptoms that will be used to generate more research as well. And then turn around and implement those research findings into our clinical practice. And then um, because as a provider, this has been challenging, I know, because we're sort of learning as we go a lot of the times. Uh, we wanted to implement education for other physicians, be it primary care doctors, be it subspecialists, about how best to take care of these patients.
0: Uh, so a, a big part of this is gathering data, right? Research. And I know there are, re- there are studies going on, you know, across the, across the country. Probably around the world, uh, what is it that yeah. you, that we we most want to know? What, what what's kind of the top things on the list that we don't know that we we would like to know?
3: So uh, all the symptoms that are associated. Um, there was a great study that was done out of um, uh, the long-hauler study that was done out of Indiana University back in July of last year, where patients instead of just like picking from a list could actually list down the symptoms that they were having. Um, And there were numerous symptoms that people were having. And I think being able to see those patterns is important. The other thing, uh, as Lisa and everyone else has alluded to, is how long do these persist? And are they good sometimes? Are they bad sometimes? Do they get better over time? Do they get better with vaccination is one of the questions. So there's a lot of questions still to be asked um, and then even just incidents of occurrence, um, there are a number of studies that range from anywhere from 10% to 30% of patients that had COVID have lasting symptoms. So um, we, have, we have still a lot to learn.
0: Yes, uh, a lot to learn. I um, understand uh, another part of the clinic uh, is providing uh, needed services like mental health, physical therapy, that kind of thing.
3: Correct. Um, especially for some of our patients that were, like, say, hospitalized in the ICU. Some of them can end up with severe PTSD and clear debility. But then for our, you know, the so-called long-haul patients, traditional physical therapy often makes them feel worse, you know, pushing someone to exertion and can set a patient back for days where they feel terrible. So we're looking at different uh, modalities, including sort of more gentle rehab, Concept Uh, For shortness of breath, there are options for sort of breath retraining, et cetera, that may help that other clinics are using. So this requires us to sort of think outside our traditional box, but um, I think it's uh, important to listen to patients and to, you know, find things that are sort of more custom-tailored to them and what will help.
0: Before we go to break, I want to turn back to Lisa O'Brien. Uh, so Dr. Yellman talked about, we talked about uh, with him about uh, experiences like the ones uh, one that you had, which is going to various doctors, not being believed, it's anxiety, it's this, it's that. Um, one person, a long hauler quoted in the Deseret News uh, story about the new clinic, uh, talks about validation. Uh, I wonder if you talk about that, Just, <laughs> just being validated. Hey, it's not all in my head.
1: Yeah, that really is huge, um, and that's one of the things, you know, the, the patients uh, that are that have been accepted into the Bateman-Horns uh, Clinic post a lot about is just how compassionate these doctors are and how much time they spend, um, you know, how thorough they are, and they look at everything, but yeah, that validation is, is huge because, you know, like Dr. Yellman said, there are... Some people, you do start thinking that maybe you are crazy. Maybe you're, you know, focusing too much on these symptoms and making, you know, making them worse. And um, so that has been a really important uh, part of this is just being heard and listened to.
0: Um, Well, let's take a break. Uh, We will come back after this break. Uh, We're talking with Lisa O'Brien, founder of a COVID-19 long haulers group, with Dr. Braden Yellman of the Bateman Horn Center and Dr. Jeanette Brown, director of the new post-COVID care clinic at University of Utah. We're talking about COVID-19 long haulers, um, and uh, we'll talk more following this break.
4: Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Hamiltons at the Country Club, celebrating Father's Day with a brunch on Sunday, June 20th, from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., located at the Logan Country Club, 710 North, 1500 East in Logan. Reservations available at 435-753-6020 or by emailing info at cafesabor.com. Support also comes from Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, with a reminder that your mother might clean up after you, but Mother Nature won't. Please be respectful of others by picking up human waste and garbage and keeping the trails clean for everyone.
5: Northern Utah's Monarchs and Other Winged Wonders celebration is quickly approaching. Utah Public Radio will be there. We're joining the Cache Valley Wildlife Association at the Nibley Heritage Park, Thursday, June 24th, from 4 p.m. to dusk. Food trucks, information booths, our UPR Storytelling Recording Tent, where you can share your thoughts about caring for the fireflies and monarchs, all part of this great celebration. We'll see you on June 24th.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking about COVID-19 long haulers. These are folks who continue to suffer debilitating effects from the disease months after being infected with the virus. And many long haulers say they had active lifestyles prior to getting sick, but they're nowhere near getting back to normal. Others are saying they're improving slowly but surely, and so that's good news. Uh, We're talking today with Lisa O'Brien, who's founder of a Utah COVID-19 long haulers group. We're also talking with Dr. Braden Yelman of the Bateman Horn Center and Dr. Jeanette Brown, director of the new post-COVID care clinic at the University of Utah. I'd love to hear your story. Are you a COVID-19 long hauler? Uh, Tell us your story. How are you doing? What do you need? Um, What are your thoughts um, upracess at gmail.com, the best way to get to us, email, upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's upraccess@gmail.com. at uh, gmail.com. So I want to, uh, I'll direct this first to uh, Lisa O'Brien, but I just want to uh, read a little bit from a Deseret News article. Uh, this is from late May. Uh, it tells the story of uh, someone called Jen Abusilov it was a COVID long hauler. Uh, she uh, stayed home most of the time. Uh, uh, a uh, very strict masker. Felt good about things. Then August 2020 got COVID. Really uh, hit her lungs. She had to get on oxygen. Um, and uh, and that evolved to to chest pain, brain fog, headaches, and terminal f- fatigue. And she says, according to the story, as of last month, uh, she's she's still. In a, in a pretty bad way, life is just not the same as it was uh, before. So, Lisa O'Brien, you said you've s- shown some uh, improvement. Others have as well, but you said also that there are those, I guess, like Jen, who um, just are, aren't getting better. Um, and I wonder what you would say to those those folks. Obviously, hope in your case, because you're seeing some improvement. What about somebody like Jen who's just seems like not making improvement?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that's one of the one reason that I started the group, too, was to, you know, make sure that these these new long haulers that were coming into the group, you know, had support and knew that they weren't alone um, and could see from our stories that, you know, there is hope for improvement. Um, I think a lot of the reasoning, too, that we're seeing improvements is that we're kind of now identifying um, some of these post-viral syndromes that we're ending up with, um, and I know Dr. Yellman talked a little bit about this, but we're seeing a lot of similarities to ME-CFS or uh, what's what been referred to as chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, we're seeing a lot of people end up with what they call mast cell activation syndrome, so that's why you're seeing, like, all these new allergies to certain substances or foods that people never had before or rashes. Um we're seeing a lot of people end up with dysautonomia, so dysfunction of your autonomic nervous system. And more specifically, um, a lot of people are ending up with POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, and that's why we're seeing people you know, with the crazy heart rates or every time they stand up, you know, their heart rates are, are spiking. Um, and so learning about these syndromes and how to manage the symptoms and treat them I think has um, really, like, made it so much easier for, um, you know, even the the new long haulers to to have these protocols and implement them. And I think, you know, had I had these or had this knowledge and this information earlier, maybe I would have improved um, sooner. But it took me 11 months until I got into the Bateman Horn Center program, 11 months. Um, before I was even diagnosed with POTS um, and mast cell activation syndrome, um, I had gone to over, like, probably over 10 doctors in that 11 months, um, and not once did anybody say, let's look at POTS, because it's just not widely known. Um, And so I think as we continue to educate the medical profession and and get this information out there, in in fact, the CDC just... uh, just published some guidelines on their website two days ago on how to manage and treat these symptoms. Um, and and some of our uh, patient-led research groups worked with them on these, on formulating these guidelines. And so the patient perspective uh, is included in these guidelines. They're really awesome guidelines. So I think as things continue, we continue to learn um, and have ways to uh, you know the knowledge to recognize these symptoms and treat them. I think that people will, you know, hopefully uh, start to improve and maybe even sooner.
0: Doctor Yellman, I want to talk about post-viral illnesses. Uh, Chris, a specialty there at the Bateman Horn Center, uh, which include, uh, you know, the post-COVID um, or long COVID. Uh, is you know speaking to, to Jen's experience there, so you know August to you know almost a year now, <laughs> and, and no improvement at all. Uh, is that rare? It, it, do you generally see improvement uh, with, when patients come to you? Or um, and I guess related question is is this you know forever in some form, uh, you know chronic? You're going to have this. Uh, maybe you can treat the symptoms. Your life can get better, but you're going to have it.
2: Right. So I think each case is individual. In our uh, post-viral cases that we've been following for years, many of the people that end up at the Bateman's Horn Center have been ill for several years already. And by that point, we do often tend to think this is a chronic illness that can be managed but may not ever be truly gone. However, with long covid The difference is we're seeing people relatively early in the course of illness, Uh, and I think has been been alluded to by Lisa, is that when things are modified or when symptoms are uh, more optimally treated early in the illness, it does seem that people can turn around and do much better. It's one of the things we're really trying to learn about long COVID, uh, and hopefully that will also inform our understanding of other post-viral illnesses, how they develop and why they become chronic. Um, In the case of any individual patient, Probably the most important thing we have learned from post-viral illnesses is that when people are sick early on, uh, there's nothing more important they can do than to pace themselves, than to make sure they're not overdoing what they are capable of in the setting of their illness symptoms. Um, We recognize a phenomenon in in these patients uh, that we refer to as post-exertional malaise, And these are episodes in which uh, metabolism uh, changes and the person's actual ability to function is significantly reduced, even from a reduced baseline when they're ill. So if they exceed a certain amount of energy utilization, be that physical exertion, be that cognitive uh, exertion, or even emotional exertion, Uh, That can lead to a delay in response and then a payback, as people put it, with even worse days and reduced function from their reduced baseline. And there's really nothing they can do to get out of this episode of post-exertional malaise other than to wait it out. So we've found that repeated, continued episodes of post-exertional malaise are associated with a worsened long-term functional prognosis, and in the case of long COVID, perhaps um, a switch from a subacute illness to an actual chronic illness. So the biggest thing we're encouraging people to do is when they feel ill, when they don't feel like they can continue not to push through. That is a message we've always had in medicine, push through, fight things. That is probably the wrong thing to do in early post-COVID. And we would like to send a message to other physicians, even if they're not familiar with treating POTS or mast cell activation syndrome, the best thing you can do for your patient is to help them Pace and avoid these episodes of bad days of post-exertional malaise. If that means uh, short-term disability from work, so that they can continue to heal, that really does appear to be the best course of action.
0: So the, the word's going to have to get out not only to uh, you know patients or those who suffer from long COVID, but uh, to. Population in general, right? Because employers are going to have to cooperate. Uh, uh, They're going to have to accept that, I guess, from from a long hauler, that uh, I need to rest, I need to take short-term disability and not get pressure to come back to work.
2: Yeah, that's not really part of the American work culture, but uh, understanding that will be critical to these people's health.
0: Yeah. Um. I'll turn next to uh, Dr. Jeanette Brown. She's director of the new uh, post-COVID care clinic, University of Utah. Uh, I wanted to get maybe some numbers, at least what we know or think we know. um, uh, Do we think we have a percentage, you know, overall people who've had COVID and a percentage who who get long COVID?
3: Uh, Long COVID, depending on the studies you read, can be anywhere from 10 to 30% of patients, so it's a lot of people. Unfortunately, um, you know, uh, that's when we were building the clinic, it's sort of difficult to have that crystal ball to know, you know, how many more cases of new COVID are we going to have, how many cases of long COVID are out there. Um, so we spent a fair amount of time trying to structure the clinic so that we could take care of patients. Um, one of the challenges is, you know, to go see a subspecialist, like, for example, a cardiologist that's familiar with POTS, you know, you can sit and wait for months to get into that person's clinic. So we have developed um, a network called eConsults where a primary care provider can um, You know, then refer to a subspecialist with a specific question, get insight, or you know, things like potential treatments to try, while a person, for example, is waiting, you know, to get into that subspecialist clinic. So, a lot of this is like we were kind of talking about earlier, earlier, earlier recognition of things, and then earlier trials of potential therapies.
0: Uh, trials of potential therapies. Uh, so, th- the, such is going on. It, we're, we're trying new things.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes, um, there is a pe- specific medicine that was uh, originally started for heart failure that they found uh, in the study from UCS that, or San Diego actually that uh, has been helpful in some patients with POTS. Um, and also, just modifying physical therapy regimens, as we were just alluding to earlier, to try to avoid those horrible bad days after people push it too far, um, you know. And then their breathing retraining and some other things, um, you know, that can be tried without the patient having to wait, you know, three months to see a specialist, for example.
0: Yeah, let me pause right here and, and maybe get contact uh, points. So, um, first with uh, Dr. Brown, how do people get connected with the, with the COVID care clinic?
3: That's an excellent question. Um, you can call the referral phone number is one eight hundred or 1-800-1213-0884. and referring providers can send in a fax to eight zero one. for those providers that are sending in referrals it's helpful if they put things like patient is struggling with brain fog and you know autonomic uh, function or they're still having chest pain and shortness of breath so because there are a lot of symptoms patients can have with long hauler syndrome.
0: Mm -hmm. And Dr. Yellman how best to get connected up with the Bateman Horn Center?
2: Right. So we have a website, which is uh, BatemanHornCenter.org. That's B-A-T-E-M-A-N-H-O-R-N-E-Center.org. And on our website, um, we have all kinds of tools there. There's a a research tab that people can click on if they want to participate In uh, some of our research, which is, you know, looking at the differences and similarities between post-COVID and other post-viral illnesses, there's also a clinical care tab in which people can uh, apply to be a patient at the Bateman-Horne Center. We do have a bit of an application to make sure that people's symptoms are appropriate with our expertise in treating people. Um, And then uh, even if you're just curious about whether you could have long hauler symptoms, uh, we have a lot of resources on our website and videos that uh, talk about mast cell activation, that talk about dysautonomia and POTS and some of the basic things that we can do or things that can even help primary care physicians and other providers uh, take care of people with these symptoms. So our website's a really good resource for all of those things.
0: All right. And Lisa O'Brien, how to get connected up with the Long Haulers Group?
1: Yeah, so uh, on Facebook... If you um, do a search for Utah COVID-19 long haulers, um, and then we have in parentheses 30-plus days, um, you'll find, you can find us there. Um, we have 3,200 members now that we have found. Um, and then for, uh, if, you, if, if anybody has trouble finding that, um, anybody can email us at utahlonghaulers at gmail.com. Um, and Utah is spelled out U T A H. So utahlonghaulers at gmail dot
0: com. All right. Um, so uh, unpause on that uh, after we have that contact information. Uh, so Dr. Brown, uh, do we have uh, good information on demographics? The the long haulers have disproportionately more women than men, or young than old. Do we do we know any demographic information?
3: So, some of the studies that came out, including some of the first early follow-ups from China and from Europe and also from the United States, the average ballpark age is uh, in the 40s, um, and they're primarily female over male predominance. But that's not to say that if you're outside of that demographic that you can't get it because we've seen, you know, older men get it or younger men get it as well. It just doesn't seem to be as predominant. Um, There have been some hypotheses out there that maybe there's an autoimmune component to this because um, of that age group and gender uh, makeup, but I think these are things that remain to be studied.
0: Dr. Yeoman, are there demographics on uh, post-viral illnesses in general?
2: There are. Um, It sometimes depends on the potential trigger for that post-viral illness, Um, but we do see a little more often than not more women than men. Um, And we tend to see people maybe a little bit younger than we're seeing in the uh, long COVID population. So we can see people as early as age 12, develop pretty uh, remarkable symptoms that fit with a diagnosis of ME-CFS. But we see people all the way up into their 60s and 70s as well. Um, And yes, it is both women and men. Um, We do recognize that there are certain types of people who appear to be at a bit of a higher risk for developing these illnesses in the first place. Um, Certainly it can run in families. There are people with what we call hypermobility of the connective uh, tissue that seem to be more likely uh, to develop these illnesses. And then there are people, uh, not unlike myself actually, who have POTS but do not have all the other constellation of symptoms um, who can eventually develop uh, post-viral illnesses in this full symptom complex.
0: Lisa O'Brien, uh, what about long haulers, at least in the, the folks that uh, you, you associate with in, in your group or that you've talked to? Uh, the, are there trends, demographics that you note?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, like um, both doctors said, we're definitely seeing um, more women, predominantly more women. Um, you know, we've, we've wondered if maybe that number is a little bit higher because men don't typically seek out um, support groups online, uh, and, and we're also seeing, you know, the average age somewhere, <clears throat> somewhere in the mid-40s, um, and most long haulers from some patient-led research that has been done in some of the groups, most long haulers, around 80 to 85 percent, um, had mild cases of COVID to begin with and were never hospitalized, and if they were, it was for, like, a night or two for oxygen therapy.
0: Uh, before we go to break, uh, we have a question that's come in by email. And by the way, we're encouraging your email. Love to know your story if you're a long hauler or, or love a long hauler or maybe just in general uh, post-viral illness. Or maybe you don't know what's going on with you and you want to want to kind of explore that. Uh, and uh, if you're a long hauler, have you improved or are the symptoms still the same? Uh, you can reach us by email to upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com. That's upraccess at gmail.com. This question comes from Jim and it's directed to Dr. Yellman. Uh, he says Hi, Tom. Question for Dr. Yellman Do long COVID and MECFS appear to be the same illness?
2: Yeah, that's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, they seem very, very similar, at least in their initial presentations. And the post-exertional malaise that we referred to earlier, those episodes of bad days where function is even further reduced, those uh, are present in both illnesses. But to our knowledge, post-exertional malaise is unique to post-viral illnesses and to me as we define that illness and is not really present in any other illnesses that we're aware of. So that's probably the most pathognomonic or defining feature, and they both do share that. Now what's interesting is that when you have a multi-system illness like this that affects all of the organ and body systems, there can be some really different manifestations in different people. Um, Sometimes their baseline genetics or, or other things about their environment can really impact the way the illness progresses over time. And so uh, when we talk about ME-CFS, that may actually be an umbrella term that covers 20 very similar illnesses, but not exactly the same. Uh, and long COVID may be a subtype uh, as well of those illnesses. It reminds me of lupus, which we refer to as one illness, but is probably uh, 20 really similar, but not exactly the same illnesses as well.
0: Uh, that makes it, it makes it difficult, very complicated, right, uh, to, to try to treat.
2: It absolutely does, and I think even more than treatment, which we can, can base uh, depending on people's clinical presentation, it makes it harder to study these things because it's difficult to define a patient population that has exactly similar characteristics um, and uh, therefore be able to statistically determine uh, impacts of uh, treatment responses or even things as simple as demographics.
0: Well, let's take a break. We're talking about uh, long COVID, talking about the COVID-19 long haulers. Uh, And we're talking with Lisa O'Brien, founder of a Utah COVID-19 long haulers group. Also talking with Dr. Braden Yellman from the Bateman Horn Center and Dr. Jeanette Brown, director of the new post-COVID care clinic at the University of Utah. More following this.
4: Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and the USU Lyric Repertory Company, presenting The Mountaintop, a drama about the last day of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., his reflections on his achievements, failures, and unfinished dreams. June 16th through July 17th. Details at lyricrep.org. Support also comes from Idaho National Laboratory. Experience the world's first nuclear power plant. Experimental Breeder Reactor 1 at any time and from any place through the Travel Stories app on your mobile device. More information is available at inl.gov forward slash ebr.
2: Support for the Utah I'm Jay Allison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment, have another 10 minutes left, with our panel talking about long COVID. And we're talking with Lisa O'Brien, founder of the Utah COVID-19 Long Haulers Group, Braden, Dr. Braden Yellman with the Bateman Horn Center, and Dr. Jeanette Brown, director of the new post-COVID care clinic at the University of Utah. I want to start the, this uh, uh, segment with uh, Dr. Brown. Um let's see I'm trying to find this here this is from a press release from University of Utah Health um, and <laughs> it struck me Dr. Brown you say you're quoted here right now treating COVID-19 and its long-term effects is like jumping out of an airplane and trying to make the parachute as you go down what does you mean by that?
3: Um, that quote more actually came from more of the ICU care yeah, because yeah. it was so intense and so quick but then you know as sort of things, the dust started to settle with our ICU population We, um, you know, became more and more aware of patients like Lisa and like others who, you know, didn't fit the stereotypical model of being uber sick in the ICU and then being critically ill long-term. These are patients, like Lisa said, you know, mild illness initially and then still having symptoms. So um, I think one of the reasons that I went into medicine is because I enjoy a challenge And I think a lot of us in the medical group or medical world have been very challenged over the last year and change uh, because, you know, there is no textbook to go to. There are no guidelines to look at. We're assembling those as we go and using, you know, the best tools we have available.
0: Yeah, so I guess you're constructing or have constructed the parachute, uh, hopefully, before you Mm -hmm. (laughs) hit the ground. Um, So. Uh, yeah, we have learned a lot. It's been in excess of a year now. Uh, have learned a lot. And I asked you earlier in the program what we still have uh, t- to learn, uh, and there are a lot of studies going on, right? Uh, are you hopeful sure. that we'll we'll make the progress that we need to?
3: Correct. And you know, one of the neat things about being a large, you know, tertiary care academic center is there are a lot of smart people who are interested in these problems. Uh, We have research going on in dentistry and the School of Nursing, you know, in all of our departments, you know, there's someone who's interested in COVID and its effects on the body, and uh, part of their clinic research infrastructure is to help coordinate those things. Uh, We've put in for large NIH grants, you know, the goal is to support this research long-term and also engage the long-hauler community community you know, to be part of that um, conversation and focusing that research.
0: Lisa O'Brien, this this clinic is one of the things that your group asked for, so that uh, must be pleasing to have this uh, now. Uh, what are you, as a long-hauler community, what are you looking for? What uh, w- what are your hopes at this point? What, what do you see that needs to be done?
1: Um, yeah, we are super excited uh, for this clinic. There's So many people that this is going to help. Um, You know, I think having, uh, you know, this multidisciplinary type approach is going to save patients so much time and so much money. You know, as of right now, or or before we were seeing, you know, cardiologists and uh, pulmonologists and neurologists and going to all these different doctor appointments, um, none of these doctors or specialists were communicating with each other about. Our specific cases so we were getting differing um, information from each doctor. Um, some still had never even heard of long haulers uh, so having this clinic you know that is uh, focused on long haulers and they're staying up to date on the latest research and the latest studies and you know developing their own studies and working you know we hope to be uh, working with them uh, with this research, you know, uh, kind of, uh, you know, helping out in any way that we can, um, and it's just it's so different for the the post viral symptoms are so different for each individual. I know we talked about you know some of these other post viral syndromes, but there are some people in our in my group, um, a lot of people in my group, who are still just dealing with loss of taste and smell, you know, and it's been like a year and. They still, you know, one lady talked about in a post um, about a small fire starting in her house, and she didn't even know because she couldn't smell it. Um, There's people whose smells and tastes don't match up with how they should taste. You know, they're eating pizza and they taste diesel oil. So, you know, I I think this doesn't seem like a big issue, but mentally it's it's having a huge impact on them because they can't eat their favorite foods anymore, you know, um, some people are still just dealing with uh, lung issues which are impacting them. So it's just, um, it, it's so individual, and it, it's such an individual thing that it'll be nice to have, you know, this individualized uh, care and all these doctors uh, communicating.
0: And you told us early in the program you're seeing improvement. That, that's that's got to increase your hope.
1: Yeah, it definitely does. Um, and even, you know, in one of Dr. Bateman's latest webinars, she even told us, you know, that we're catching this so early on that she, even she is optimistic that we will see improvements. Um, and so hearing that from her, you know, there's still so many things we don't know, but hearing that from her, you know, it gives me a lot of hope too, and, and just seeing my own improvements. So,
0: uh, so, Dr. Yellman, uh, treating these uh, post-viral illnesses, um, and, it, you know, we've talked with all of you on the panel here today about uh, the emotional side of this, uh, frustration, uh, getting a diagnosis, finally getting a diagnosis, uh, I guess coming to terms with if it may be chronic and you're maybe going to have this the rest of your life. Uh, maybe talk a bit about that. How, how do you help your patients navigate that part of it?
2: Sure. You know, I wanted to touch on one thing uh, briefly uh, that Lisa was just speaking about, too. I think when we talk about long COVID as compared to other post-viral illnesses, it's important to remember that COVID-19 itself as a virus can do viral damage differently than other viruses that cause post-viral illnesses like Epstein-Barr virus, for example. That's the virus that causes mononucleosis. Um, You know, COVID-19 can cause heart damage, can cause lung damage, can cause nerve damage that leads to loss of smell and taste, can cause... Um, issues with blood clots. And some of those are not features of other post-viral illnesses. So when we are looking for improvement, uh, it is important to engage uh, multiple physicians of different specialties to really address what might be damage from the virus itself versus what might be a uh, reaction to having been infected but no longer having having the virus present. Um, To your question about uh, helping people Uh, move forward uh, in in this case, Um, I want to go back to the idea that the earlier we catch this and the earlier that we start implementing uh, things like pacing and avoidance of post-exertional malaise, uh, the more likely we expect people to uh, improve. But even when they are not uh, necessarily going to when it feels like they've entered the phase of a chronic illness and we're not sure that they're ever going to fully improve, they can still manage their illness. I often will tell my post-viral um, patients who've had illness for a long time, it's a little bit like having type 1 or autoimmune diabetes. Uh, when when that happens, it's definitely not pleasant. It's a, it's a bummer in many ways. Um, but a patient has a choice to use things like insulin, um, to live a relatively normal life and not have severe complications of their illness. Or they can say, you know, insulin is not fun. I don't like sticking myself with needles and I'm just not going to do this. I'm going to bury my head in the sand. And that's when they experience significant complications and worsening of their illness as a whole. And I think of uh, post-viral illnesses and potentially of long COVID in the same way. Um, it, it, it's not you know, a great diagnosis to have. It's not something anyone would be pleased to have, but you can choose to manage it and really keep the complications minimized, or you can keep pushing and keep fighting it and not accepting it. And those people sadly end up usually doing worse on a functional basis uh, over time.
0: We just have about 30 seconds left. I want to quickly uh, get some contact points again at the end of the program. Um, so let me turn uh, first to Dr. Jeanette Brown. How best to contact the, the COVID care clinic?
3: So, right now, um, we are working on putting up a website, but again, let me give you those phone numbers the phone number and the fax. The phone number is 801 213 0884, and then for fax referrals, 801 213 1147. And again, our clinic also includes uh, a group for uh, support group for long haul patients as well, in addition to our subspecialty care.
0: All right. Uh, Dr. Yellman, how to contact Bateman Horn Center?
2: Uh, The best way to get in touch with us is actually through our website. That's batemanhorncenter.org, B A T E M A N hornecenter.org, and there we have all kinds of resources, uh, including a research tab if you're interested in uh, comparing your symptoms to those with other post-viral illnesses. There's a clinical care tab where you can apply to be a patient. Again, the application is not meant to block people out, but to help make sure that the symptoms anyone's experiencing are similar to what our expertise is and that we can uh, offer uh, assistance in that regard. And then there's a whole host of um, resources for physicians, uh, for patients, for families, uh, and support groups, videos all over our website. So we encourage people to check it out there.
0: Okay, great. And Lisa O'Brien, how to get in contact with the Long Haulers group for for, for Utah?
1: Sure. On Facebook, uh, search for Utah COVID-19 Long Haulers. Um, and if you can't find us, have issues, or you have any other questions, um, I get questions all the time. You can reach me at utahlonghaulers at gmail.com. Utah is spelled out, U T A H. Um, and then I just, Dr. Brown talked about the mental health uh, program uh, at the University of Utah. It's called Caring Connections, and I actually have their phone number. They've been wonderful working with us, um, putting together support groups for uh, long haulers that are dealing with these for months and months. And their phone number is 801 9522
0: Okay, very good. Well, thank you very much. We've had with us Lisa Bryan, founder of Utah COVID-19 Long Haulers Hi. Group, uh, Dr. Braden Yellman, Bateman Horn Center, and Dr. Jeanette Brown, director of the new post-COVID care clinic University of Utah. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank
1: you. Thanks for having us,
0: Tom. And uh, you're you're welcome. Uh, Great to have you on. And thanks for listening today. We'll go out as we do on uh, Wednesdays with uh, Beehive Archive.
5: It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. If someone admits they've broken the law, the government is not supposed to take up their cause, but that's exactly what happened when a group of farmers in Heber Valley stole water from the Ute Reservation for decades. Learn more after this. I'm Jody
1: Graham, director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D.
5: Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Water in Utah is a precious resource, and many have stretched the law to control it. In 1879, a group of farmers at the mouth of Daniels Canyon diverted water that belonged to the Uinta Valley Ute Reservation to irrigate crops in Heber Valley. Although this trespass was illegal, white settler ideas about land use allowed the theft to continue. During the last decades of the 1800s, white farmers dug miles of canals, built reservoirs, and even dug an 800-foot tunnel through the mountain. This system, built and maintained by two different canal companies with dozens of investors, pulled water from the Strawberry River in one watershed across the reservation boundary into another. The Strawberry Canal system had support from the reservation's Indian agent, who petitioned the Utah government in 1902 on its behalf, even as he acknowledged that the farmers had no legal right to this water. In 1905, the federal government sent an army unit to destroy the diversion, But the Secretary of the Interior intervened, arguing that the farmers had been accessing the resource, quote, for many years, and that the diversion of the water had not been in any manner detrimental to the Indians. So, no one denied that the diversion was illegal, but the dispute rested on cultural ideas about how water should be used. Fundamental to Western water law is the principle of use it or lose it, and for white settlers, water was meant for irrigation. But Utes had their own values and uses for water, and were not channeling it into irrigation ditches for individual plots, despite government pressure to do so. Because Utes were not using their water in the same way as white farmers, government officials decided that their water was just not being used. The Daniels diversion remained until 1992, and set the stage for larger-scale diversions of water from the Uinta Basin to the Wasatch Front. The legacy of this contentious theft is still felt in legal battles over water between the Ute tribe and the state government that remain unresolved. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.